Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. In this episode, I'm very happy, very pleased to have the wonderful and brilliant Melissa Carney on the podcast. Uh, Melissa is the Neil Moskowitz Professor of Economics at the University of Maryland. She's the director of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. She's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings, scholar affiliate member of the board of Notre Dame Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities, scholar affiliate of MIT Poverty Action Lab. She's also the editorial board member of the American Economic Journal, Economic Policy and Journal of Economic Literature, and former co-editor of the Journal of Human Resources and senior editor of Future of Children. She has a bachelor's in economics from Princeton. She has a PhD in economics from MIT. Um, and she is the author of the latest book, The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. And that is what we talk about in this conversation. Uh, I came across this book, uh, I forget where, probably somewhere online or someone showed it to me uh, a while ago, earlier this year. And I got it and I probably read it in a couple sittings and I just really, I really, really enjoyed it. It's a lot of data, um, but it's so, it's so good at pointing to something we already kind of know or, or certain things that we've kind of been familiar with. And I think it's just super, super important. And uh, she has uh, such a great way of writing and explaining the data and really explaining why we need to take this, uh, these issues seriously. I was so pleased with this conversation. Um, we had so much detail. It really felt like you know I had a better understanding of this after reading her book. And she's just a lovely person. So it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm very happy to, to bring this conversation. We start by talking about what is the two-parent privilege. We talk about the class gap in families and the importance of college-educated edu parents. We talk about why couples don't necessarily think about the economics of marriage before getting married. Um, we talk about the conservative, conservative family values um, and the viewpoints there on two-parent uh, household. We talk about two parents working outside the home or where, as opposed to just one staying at home. We talk about working moms, stay-at-home moms, feminism. We talk about single moms' impact on children. We also talk about the child tax credit and childhood poverty. We also talk about some of the figures with birth rates and many other topics. Again, uh, such a delight to have her. I highly, highly encourage uh, folks to uh, look into her research that she's doing over there at University of Maryland, and importantly, to pick up her book, The Two-Parent Privilege. Uh, of course, you can listen to this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. Uh, get over there, subscribe, follow, share with your friends, uh, share the podcast. Um, it really helps when people, if you really like it or you like some some guests or or many guests, it really helps when you when you share and you write reviews and you post it online. Uh, it goes a long way. So much appreciate it. And I bring you Melissa Carney. I am here with Melissa Carney. Uh, Melissa, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to this. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, so yes, of course. I uh, I was just telling you that I've been seeing your book kind of talked about in the lead up to its uh, release. So it's very, very exciting. The book is called The Two-Parent Privilege, How the Decline in Marriage Has Increased Inequality and Lowered Social Mobility and What We Can Do About It. It's a lovely uh, subtitle. And uh 
I guess before we get into the book, I'm going to talk all about it, get into the weeds as much as possible. Just kind of tell listeners your potted biography, like professionally and academically, and what you currently research and are up to. Sure. So I've been on the economics faculty at the University of Maryland for over 16 years now. I'm a labor economist and public finance economist by training. I got my PhD at MIT, my undergrad economics degree at Princeton, and I've been studying inequality in the U.S., domestic poverty, the economics of families and fertility, mostly in high-income countries, in particular the U.S., and child well-being. That's wonderful. You've uh, you're you're definitely uh, uh, well educated, and you're at a wonderful institution at the University of Maryland, just down the road from me. So that's always nice to hear. Um, yes, yeah, so that's that's wonderful. So as I was saying, I've had a few uh, economists on the podcast, and I always love talking to economists. I think you you guys have such a, a wonderful, wonderful outlook and telling us all the data, which is nice. So uh, your book is wonderful. And, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And 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 I anticipate potentially um, could be a little bit, uh, a little spicy for some people. You, you talk about some interesting things, so I want to get all into it. So first, let's talk about kind of let's set the table a little bit. Okay. So what is the two-parent privilege? Are you saying that two-parent households have a privilege that single-parent households don't have? What is this two-parent privilege and, and why, why, I guess, frame it that way from, at the very least, an economics perspective, but maybe also social, cultural, or, or anything else? What I am referring to when I say the two-parent privilege is the fact that growing up in a two-parent home is a privileged or advantaged situation for children in particular. That's my focus. And that situation is now something that is experienced at much higher rates among children born to college-educated parents. So really, this privilege or advantage of living in a two-parent household has become something disproportionately experienced by already advantaged groups in society. Um, You know, another way to look at this is that you take a privileged group, which is the college-educated class of of Americans, they are now sort of setting more likely to be married, more likely to set up two-parent households. And so the advantages or the privileges that they're able to pass on to their children are compounded. Um, it's, you know, you asked an interesting question why I framed it that way. Part of, and and also this, you know, the answer really relates to you saying this might be spicy. I really don't want it to be spicy, which that's the academic economist in me, not the marketing, uh, you know, the marketing group sure, <laughs> at the sure. book publisher. I don't want it to be spicy. I actually want to make this less spicy because I think it's really important. And I think it's a real shame that this topic of household structure or family structure is something that's become pretty loaded and hard to talk about and mired in culture wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the reason I wanted to frame this around the two-parent privilege is because there is a very real concern that when we talk about uh, household structure, we might be sort of blaming or shaming the parents who are trying to do this and working hard to do this on their own in one-parent households. And so I think sort of reframing this to say, hey, let's think about the advantages that come with two parents 
and why that situation is now becoming much more common among people who are already advantaged, I'm hoping that that'll, that gives us some license to talk about it more freely and honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's very, very important. You can't, you can't know how to adequately fix challenges unless you know what, what's there and, and, and how we get there. So how do, how do give us a little, give us a little economics history here. So how did we get to this situation where we see this unequal economy that's led to this class gap in family structure and how that's felt economically? So how, how are we in this situation? How, how have we got here where, uh, you know, families that have, you know, two parents as opposed to be one parent or, 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 or not, how is there this kind of um, inequality there? Yeah, let me let me start by just sort of doing some level setting because I'm not sure how many people are aware of the fact that there is such a class gap sure. in the existence of two parent homes. Mm-hmm. So it, it's somewhat ironic, I think, that now college educated people who are in some sense the most able to like run a household on their own because they command the highest income. That's the group of people in American society that are still much more likely. They're much more likely to get married, to be married when they have kids, and to raise their kids in two-parent homes. So now, you know, like about 85% of kids born to college-educated moms live in a married or two-parent home, depending on how you want to count things, as compared to 60 or 65% of kids born to non-college-educated moms. So really, we have this really large college gap now. So I'm, when I refer to class gaps in the book, I'm really talking about class by education. So now there's this really large college gap, and that has emerged in the past 40 years. So, you know, to get to your question of how do we get here, we're really talking about, uh, you know, the four decades after the major social cultural changes of the 60s and 70s. So let me acknowledge that. In the 60s and 70s, we all know there was a major cultural social revolution, gender roles, um, you know, evolved. We saw a reduction in marriage basically across the board, meaning marriage fell among people for all education groups. But then something peculiar happened around 1980s and beyond, which is that marriage stabilized among college-educated men and women, but it continued to fall among adults without a college degree. And in particular, you know, to the point of my book, it fell even among people who were having children together. Mm. And so this, this emergence of the college gap or class gap really emerged in the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s. It stabilized in the past, or let's say, 10 years. I think what happened, my read of the data and evidence, is that you had a new set of social norms where having kids and being married started to become unbundled in a bit. It became more acceptable to have kids outside marriage. But then what happened in the 80s and 90s was a whole bunch of economic changes that really advantaged college-educated adults and undermined the economic security or opportunity of men in particular, but not just men in the U.S., um, really undermine the sort of economic opportunity and security for people without a college degree. And what happened in those communities or populations where it became, where, you know, employment rates among men, again, in particular, started to decline, where their earnings 
started to decline both in absolute terms and relative to women. We saw that marriage rates fell and the share of kids living with single moms in particular rose. Mm. And so I think really what's happened over the past 40 years is a combination of economics that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about widening income inequality, widening economic opportunity, you know, how college educated workers have done particularly well during the same decades that non-college educated workers have not done as well. Those have combined with changing social norms in a way that's led to led to these demographic changes and now a class divide in family structure. Hmm. So let me ask so let me ask a, a kind of preamble here and then a question after that. So why are we, or not me, but but why why are our economists measuring class by this college uh, college educator or in, in this case the college gap, as opposed to something like the maybe it's antiquated the you know kind of white collar blue collar type of thing or how much how much income you're having, why the emphasis on college degrees? Because in the 80s, 90s, and maybe 2000s, a college degree meant something different in what you could do and the jobs you could get than it does now in 2023, no? So how, how do we understand yeah. that that data point? Okay, so that's a really good question. And this is, you know, depending on how you view economists, one of our strengths or our weaknesses. So One of the things that I try to do in the book, which is very typical of economists, is I try and synthesize things down in really parsimonious ways. So we could cut the data in a lot of refined ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I mean, the short answer is cutting by college is a really crude way of capturing people with sort of more economic advantage, earnings potential, and less economic potential or earnings potential. The sum that, you know, interestingly, whenever you go to sort of define things to try and make them as parsimonious as possible to sort of make the story as, let's say, coarse or aggregate as possible, you lose a lot of the nuances, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also the benefit that I can look at aggregate trends in ways um, that really allow me to draw somewhat sweeping conclusions. So one one question you might have on this is, why don't I do everything by college, high school, and then less than high school, which is actually what I do. And what's really interesting and revealing in that is that folks sort of in the middle with a high school degree and some college, but not a four-year college degree, over the past 40 years, their situation in terms of their likelihood of being married or or raising their kids in a two-parent home that has converged downward. Mm. So um, this is actually a really important point and something I wasn't, you know, it wasn't obvious to me what I was going to see when I looked at the data this way. If we go back to the 1980s, to your point, very few moms actually had a college degree. Most, Most of them had a high school degree or less than a high school degree. And we saw a little bit of gaps there, but not much, like a 10 percentage point gap. So like 90%, let's say of Moms with a college degree raise their kids in a two-parent home compared to, you know, 80 or 70 percent. And there was, you know, over the 80s, as the share of single mom households or one-parent households rose among the most disadvantaged groups of mothers, so those without a high school degree, 
there was really concern about this compounding disadvantage because you don't have a high school degree. It's pretty hard to make ends meet economically and you're more likely to be doing this by yourself. Mm. But then what happened in the 90s and 2000s, as more and more moms got a high school degree and a college degree, if sort of rates of two-parent households in marriage had stayed what they were in the 80s, we would have expected the share of kids living in one parent or single mother households to plummet, right? Because moms were becoming more and more educated. But despite that, essentially what, you know, what the data reveal over the past, again, really the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, what really happened was everybody became more likely to, to, to sort of have a child outside of a marital union to set up a household by themselves um, except for the college educated, even though more women were getting a college degree. So that group became, let's say, less highly selected or less special. That's the group that really maintained high rates of married parent families. Hmm. Any, so I've learned this over, over the many conversations I've had there, the data is the data, but do you have any ideas as to why? I know that's the that's the tricky mm-hmm. question, the why, but any ideas that point to why the shift or why that 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 occurred? Sure. So again, this is where it's helpful, I think, to look at um, you know, these course groups and you can really see very clearly these different trends. So just as a matter of correlation, we see that if you look you know, out, what happens to the earnings and employment of men without a college degree over this time period? Mm-hmm. You know, their earnings sort of stagnated. There's a lot of debate on whether they stagnated or increased a little or decreased a little, but let's say they didn't do great. Mm-hmm. Compared to women, they, you know, their sort of relative earnings fell. We know very clearly that employment rates of men without a college degree over this time period fell. And we see that marriage fell and rates of single mother households rose. So there's this striking correlation in the data that suggests as the economic desirability or economic security of these groups of men eroded, so too did the rates at which they were getting married and and marrying, you know, really the mothers of their children. But we don't see that pattern among the college-educated. College-educated men and women did very well, and they continued getting married. So that raises the question of whether there's something causal here. Mm -hmm. And um, on this, I'm convinced by the data and evidence that the answer is yes. So we have a lot of good studies in economics showing that there is a causal link between the economic status, the earnings, the employability, the employment rates, you know, different studies look at it in different ways. There's causal relationship between the economic uh, erosion, let's say, of the position of non-college educated men and the shares at which, um, and the likelihood that kids, uh, you know, born to non-college educated parents were raised in single mother homes. So let me give you a couple specific examples. Mm-hmm. There's a paper by David Otter, Gordon Hansen, and David Dorn showing that in communities that were particularly affected by increased import competition from China because of their industrial mix, mm-hmm. you know, when when um, 
the U.S. started importing more goods from China, that those manufacturing goods competed with domestically produced goods. We saw that communities that were heavily invested in manufacturing, there was a reduction in, let's say, middle, you know, middle skilled, middle waged, well paying jobs for for men without college degrees in the communities that really got hit hardest by, let's call this the, you know, China import shock. You see the share of kids living with single moms increased after that shock, okay? Mm. In a similar way, there's another paper by a different set of authors that looks at the adoption of industrial robots. And, you know, again, a similar sort of story, but different communities where they were heavily invested or, you know, they were, a lot of their employment was in sectors where um, industrial robots were adopted and that sort of drove down the employment of earnings of non-college educated men in those communities, which are actually a different set of communities, right, but affected by a sort of a similar economic shock. In those communities, we see subsequently rates of single parent households, single mother households increase. Mm. There's, you know, another paper by an economist, Nama Shanav, who actually, again, exploits how did national demand shocks affect the earnings and employment of men and women in different communities based on whether, you know, based on basically baseline industry composition of workers. And you see in communities where the demand for uh, work done by women increased, so their relative earnings increased, men's relative earnings decrease, you see a reduction in marriage and increase in single parent homes. So there's a lot of really compelling evidence showing that there's this causal link. So what does that mean in plain English? The way I think about this is as the economic value or proposition of marriage has declined for certain segments of the population, we see the likelihood that two adults set up a house together and have their children inside a marital union has decreased. So that's a that's a very unromantic view of marriage. <laughs> but, you know, again, I'm an economist. At its heart, I see marriage as an economic contract between two adults to like pool their resources and consume and produce together over the long term in a family setting. Very romantic, I know. But <laughs> when when the economic value of that long-term contract decreases, then we see fewer people getting married and, and fewer people sort of setting up a household as a two-parent household. Hmm. That's very interesting. So I, I guess the question I have here is, is this, this is another hard question to ask. I guess the question I have is, is, are people thinking about this? Are they aware of this? Like, like, are, <laughs> like aren't they just falling in love and deciding <laughs> to get married or not? <laughs> I, mean, I think when you think socially, I guess. Yeah. People, I think nowadays, that I know that I on this is that people are waiting longer to get married. Mm -hmm. um, late 20s, early 30s, if at all. Some people have just said, fuck it. I'm not going to do the whole marriage thing. We're just going to be, you know, in partnership or whatever, as opposed to earlier. Is there, do people think about, I mean, this is a hard question. Maybe this yeah. is outside your scope, but do people think about marriage in economic 
uh, framing i mean like like okay yes yeah. <laughs> there's the romanticized bit of it of like yes i love this person we want to live a life together blah 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 etc that's all well and good but also i i think there's some component to this when people are are dating or trying to they want to know what's this person do for a living what, yeah. what are they doing are they college educated do they have a job do they have a career are they driven etc what am i doing is so where does the kind of there's a there's a drop off here there's a decrease but where is there there a kind of um uh how, how much is this do you think as much as we can know in terms of decisions of the economic investment you're making in being married to somebody or or, or not being uh, invested or committed what, how do we understand that yeah so there's um there's a lot to unpack in that question so the first thing i'll say is in my economic research and my read of economic research that, you know, done by other economists, what we do is we write down these models. We think about something as an economic choice, essentially, room in our model for things that we don't observe, like love and compatibility. And then we see that the data sort of fits those patterns, right? So in terms of who keeps getting married, we see that rates of marriage remain high among the groups for whom, you know, the economic desirability of men in particular has remained high. Okay. So whether they're, whether people are thinking about it or not, we can't see, let's say in our census data, but we see patterns in the data that look as if people are. Okay. But then we can learn a lot from reading sociologist accounts, survey data that ask people what they're thinking about ethnographic accounts. And my read of that research is that people are certainly thinking about these things. Mm. And in fact, what's sort of been really uh, revealing and a lot of the work that qualitative sociologists have done Mm -hmm. interviewing, you know, the like lower income parents who are single parents, in those surveys, you don't overwhelmingly see a rejection of the idea of marriage. Instead, what you see, and here I'm thinking of work by Kathy Eden in particular, you know, you see that these um, unmarried mothers, they aspire to have uh, a marriage, but that's like considered a capstone event that's hard to achieve. So they want to be moms, so they have a kid, but then they don't really want to marry the guy unless he seems like a good, stable partner. And part of that involves whether he has a reliable job or can be relied upon to bring you know, stability and economic contributions to the household. The other place where we see this in some survey evidence, um, and here I'm thinking of the work with this sociologist, Sarah Halpern-Meekin, is in the 1980s, the Bush administration experimented with federally funded healthy marriage experiments. And social scientists, including me, sort of, um, you know, poo-pooed those results when they came out because what we saw was that when these healthy marriage initiatives were really like relationship education classes, you know, what you see in the randomized control trials is that the unmarried couples, parents who went, unmarried parents who went through these programs, they weren't more likely to be married after the program. And so then, you know, the hard-nosed social, social scientists were like, oh, see, they didn't work. But then when I read the interviews with people who participated in those programs, again, it's it's interesting. A lot of these unmarried couples, unmarried parents, they they don't reject marriage. They want 
They want stable marriage. They want healthy partnerships, but it's hard to accomplish and it's hard to achieve. And a lot of them don't have examples of sort of married couples in their lives. They, you know, they didn't come from married parent households. A lot of their friends and relatives aren't married. And so, you know, for some people, I think there's a rejection of marriage, but my read of the data and evidence, again, both in and outside economics is not overwhelmingly that people are rejecting the idea of marriage in our society, but more that it feels like something that would be nice to have if all the pieces are in place. And those pieces include identifying a partner who will be a you know, stable economic contributor to the household. Listeners can't see, but I can see you're grimacing. What yeah, like? I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort this out. So, so there are, I understand, I understand that our understanding of committed romantic relationships, at least, or and or marriage, has evolved and changed over time. But isn't it obvious? Again, this is I'm just this is my I'm speaking purely out of ignorance. Isn't isn't it obvious that economically, if you're married to somebody, you it's not dead weight, right? Like even if somebody is not pulling uh income, let's say. Yeah. Right? Let's take gender roles out of it for a minute. Let's say it's male or female. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it a huge economic advantage, let's say, if you're married to somebody and one parent stays at home and the other person goes out and makes makes uh bring what brings home the bacon, right? Yeah. If if that's the case, they I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if you have children, but I have I I have a child. I know how expensive it, it is yeah, yeah. fucking oh. expensive yeah. for childcare. Now my, my daughter's older now. So, you know, but I remember those years and those years were hard. And this was, you know, yeah. 15, 16 years ago. Those years are hard. I mean, daycare, aftercare. I mean, we're talking, you know, thousands a month sometimes. I mean, it's, it's very expensive. If you have somebody staying at home, that's saving you 1500, two grand. Even if this person isn't bringing an income. Totally. Doesn't that make sense to say, listen, I'm married. This person isn't working, but you know what? We're saving money on eating out, maybe. We're saving money on uh, childcare or aftercare. This person is also contributing as well. This is this is one one aspect of it. I, I, I mean, we can talk about uh, two parents that go and, go out and work and also do stuff at home. But isn't that, if you're saying that sometimes one of the the partners a spouse or whatever you know doesn't quite fit all the particular things of contributing of sorts isn't just the mere fact of being at home and being with children in, in, enough to you know economically at least you know have a balanced budget what am i missing here no yeah i don't think you're missing anything i agree with you completely um I mean, again, this gets back to why I feel like it's a two-parent privilege, right? It, and and you even said too, you know, it was a privilege or an advantage to have a spouse in the home that you could rely on, even if it's not just for a paycheck, but 
you know, I'm sitting here talking to you. So like my husband has to go pick up my daughter from camp, right? There's somebody else in the house who you could rely on to do things. That is very, very advantageous. Um, So, I mean, this is why I think this is an issue that anybody who cares about class gaps and inequality in society should care about. It's not as empathetic as I think people would like to be or intend to be when they say, I'm not going to judge anybody. I'm not going to judge single moms, live and let live. And I'm thinking, you know, how come college educated women are so much more likely to have the benefit of someone else in the house to help them do things than less educated women or non-white women? That's not a privileged position to be able to say, hey, I'm doing this by myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And so it raises, I think, really important questions that I'm trying to get people to grapple with, but with this book, which is why is it? Why is it that the most economically vulnerable segments of society are the ones most likely to be doing this by themselves, given everything you just said? It's really much easier to do this with somebody else. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And then if the answer is, you know, one one common retort I get. When I'm like, look, 40% of kids now in the U.S. are born outside marriage. More than half of kids born to non-college educated women are born outside marriage. Uh, 70% of kids born to Black moms in the U.S. are born outside to marriage. Could it really be the case that all of those dads wouldn't be positive contributors to their household in any way? Right? Well, even if, even if, they had high rates of unemployment, which surely not all of those men are out of work, right? Though we do know that um, there, there are is an in, there is an increase for, for unemployment for, for yeah, exactly. We do know it's that there everybody. is a lot more, you know, non-employment now among uh, among men. Again, non-culture. Even if they weren't working stably or bringing in high income, can't can't they do something useful, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm also like, this is also I don't think it's an empathetic position. To say, well, I'm not going to judge anybody. Why is it that either those men feel like they don't have enough to offer that they, you know, are are marrying the mother of their children or the the women don't think these men have enough to offer that they're not marrying them? Like there is a crisis here. If we're anywhere close to that high a proportion of dads in particular, because again, most single parent homes are mother only homes, Mm -hmm. that many dads either viewing themselves or being viewed by their partners as not positive contributors to the household. So that's one possibility. Another possibility, and again, I don't think there's one explanation for why rates of uh, two parent households have declined so much. And, you know, I think there's a bunch of different explanations, but, you know, another possibility is that we've so normalized the separation of having kids from marriage that in certain communities and segments of the population, people are just ambivalent and don't recognize what you said. Like, hey, we should try to make this work because it's really hard to do it by ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm sure there's some couples where that's the case. But again, you know, we see in survey data and ethnographic data that there are a lot of couples who realize it's hard, would prefer to be parenting in a stable two-parent relationship, but there's a lot of barriers to achieving that. Yeah, I'll just say there was a couple years ago, my my wife went on a, a work trip, I believe, for about a week. 
and yeah. my daughter was a little bit younger. She wasn't, she wasn't, uh, she, well, you know, she wasn't six or seven, but I think she was, you know, preteen or something like that. I remember. <clears throat> and I was, after two days, I was like, how do single parents do this? There's yeah. no way because it's yeah. not, I mean, I love my daughter to pieces. Like she's great. She's pretty, you know, I got to say she's, you know, she's a great kid and she's pretty, you know, easy. She's not, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, challenges or issues. She's, you know, she's great. But it was the like, where, when's the relief come in? Where's yeah. the, like, yeah. I want to, I want to break because it's, I it's only break. me. If something happens, well, okay, dad, you got to fix this or, oh, well, why doesn't this work? Or what are we going to eat again here? And it's just like, well, I can't say, you know, go ask your mom or whatever, right? Yeah. It was, I've just been doing this for, you know, the whole time or whatever. And it's like, and, you know, I'm not complaining. I mean, again, I, I love being a, a parent and a dad and my daughter's wonderful, but it is that kind of thing of like, I really was in that space of, oh man, I imagine doing this all the time. All the There's time, no all relief. by yourself. Yeah. No I mean, this, okay. A hundred percent agree with you. And there's a few things. So yes, I have kids too. I have three kids. They're amazing. I love being their mom more than anything in the world. It's really exhausting. Yes. And this is why I sort of, you know, have decided, I finally decided to write this book after, you know, 20 years of being in these academic conferences where we see, you see in the data, anyone who studies child poverty knows mm. It's like five times higher among single parent households. Mm -hmm. Anyone who studies inequality sees both the cause and effect of widening income inequality in the U.S. on family structure. But too many academics don't want to say it out loud or admit this publicly because there's a whole history for a variety of reasons of why, you know, this is a tricky topic to talk about. And, and a main one is nobody wants to sound like they're blaming the victim. Okay. But to your point, when you do this, when you're a parent, it's, it's like so common sense that this would be really hard to do by myself, by myself. Right. Yeah. And so you're like, it's there in the data. It's very commonsensical. Why should we say, oh, hey, let's just, let's just keep going where the most advantaged groups in society are just so much more likely to have a you know a spouse and a committed co-parent to do this with and not point out this major disadvantage economic disadvantage time disadvantage emotionally draining disadvantage that less advantaged groups in society are basically living with and so i just you know there's the other interesting thing here is People who aren't seeped in the social science sort of culture wars on this, when I tell them I'm writing this book, they're like, why would that be controversial? Isn't it obvious this would be hard to do by yourself? <laughs> and so, you know, yes, but but um, there's just sort of an unfortunate, there's an unfortunate history here that makes it hard to talk about these things because in the past it's been talked about in a way that sounded like, you know, academics or policy observers were blaming the people for being in this position. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, the other um, interesting piece of resistance to this is some people when they, you know, hear someone like me talk about the advantage of two parent households it sounds like a repudiation of uh, of feminism, mm. right? Or the economic progress made by women. 
Mm-hmm. And again, I don't I don't think that needs to be the case. Certainly, I don't bemoan the economic advances that women have made such that women are no longer uh, left without any choice but to be dependent on a man who might be abusive or, you know, a, just a terrible uh, husband or father. I think we can hold two thoughts in our head at the same time, which is it's great that women no longer need to be dependent on men for economic viability. And the rise in the share of mothers who are raising kids in a household by themselves and the corresponding rise in the share of kids who don't have two parents in their household has not been good for society. Mm. That was also on my list to to bring up as well. So <laughs> you, you beat me to it. I guess before we get there about the feminism part, I'm hearing already in my head the the claims that I think are I don't necessarily think are wrong. I think it's overused and not uh, policy wise kind of followed up on. But I'm hearing conservatives, you know, in my head, you know, saying we we got to bring back family values. We need to have get married. We need to have kids. We need to do it like we used to do it, right? And you you hear a lot of this stuff, which I don't. I think people should do what they want to do, right? I mean, you know, but mm-hmm. I think that. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, yes, I mean, we should, we should get married, but you know, married and have kids. I do think, interestingly enough, that this is, you know, the same group of folks that are, you know, not going to be very supportive of very various policies for economic policies for people that do have, uh, uh, you know, large families or that have uh, children more, more often than not. So I guess is, is that, the question I have here is, does that seem like a, just a kind of simple answer to this problem was just get married and you have some kids. And if you do that, you know, and you're married with, with somebody else, you'll be fine. Is that, <laughs> is that, if, if, if that's what we're saying, it's like, well, duh. I mean, you and I have been right. saying, well, of course, if, if you got two people in the house and they're two parents and it's going to be a little bit better than if you just have one is the answer. Well, people should just get married and then it will be a little bit easier. I don't yeah. think that's entirely what you're saying. I I'm I don't do this research. So what what do you think about this kind of narrative? So look, there's 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 enough in my book for people across the political or ideological spectrum to like and dislike. So ideally everyone would get on board with my <laughs> book, but there's also, you know, enough that sort of contradicts the thing things said by both sides. I do think that the view that two-parent households are beneficial to kids, that marriage brings a lot of benefits to children and adults, I think that's right. I think it is irrefutable in the data, frankly. So in that case, if you want to keep some score, the social conservatives are right. Mm-hmm. Where I think things get uh, more complicated is by acting like these are just choices that are made in a vacuum as opposed to really tough choices. So here's why I think it's so critical and why I spend so much time in my book trying to get at 
why is it that this, that marriage and the two-parent households has become essentially a luxury good for the economically advantaged, right? What are the barriers that are making it so difficult for some people to achieve that? And there's a lot of real barriers. Again, the evidence and data on this is pretty irrefutable. Like it's, you know, we see couples, unmarried, you know, unmarried parents, um, they're much more likely to be raising kids alone if they are part of demographic groups that have low rates of employment. And by the way, you know, we, we know from, again, research that's come out in, in recent years, I'm thinking of Angus Deaton and Ann Case's work. Mm-hmm. These same communities that have low rates of marriage and high rates of single parent households also now have high rates of what they call deaths of despair. There's social malaise in these communities too. So the economic challenges facing certain segments of our society are also creating other social challenges. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of if we focus on the most disadvantaged groups, um, you know, a lot of those men have engagement with the criminal justice system. They, you know, that again makes it harder for them to have steady employment, even after they're released from um, you know, prison or if, if they've been incarcerated. So there are all sorts of barriers. And here's where I think the progressives tend to be right. We need to do much more to help struggling economically vulnerable groups in society. And I think that is sort of a necessary, if not sufficient condition for restoring marriage and two-parent households in these affected communities and segments of the population. So this is why I say there's something for everybody to like and dislike, which is, you know, I think we need to acknowledge that two-parent households are beneficial for kids And the decline in marriage, which has led to a decline in two-parent households, has unequivocally been bad for kids in this country. And then we have to acknowledge that it's more than just people making that choice. There are constraints and there are barriers that are leading to this. And so then we need to do much more to help those communities address those barriers. And those two things need to go hand in hand, both the sort of reestablishment of a norm of two-parent households, an acknowledgement that having two-parent households is beneficial for children, and then social and policy and economic work to improve the situation of vulnerable households so they can, you know, they can achieve basically a stable relationship in a two-parent household that's healthy for everybody involved. You navigated that minefield very well. Nicely done. Nicely done. Yeah, there is something for everybody there. <laughs> I either navigated it or just like blew it up for everybody. <laughs> oh, oh, you did it. Okay, so another minefield here about feminism. So the que- I'll, I'll, this will kind of thematically come into play with the question, I guess. But So if, if marriage is a resource advantage, <clears throat> how does this work with... Um, one parent so let's say it's a how do i want to frame this so there's it's a two-parent household but one parent works outside the home and let's say someone else stays at home you know most of the time or whatever and then how how does that look with the other household next door that has two parents but both work outside the home and then both you know come home and do all the other things is there a difference is it just the two-parent or is there something deeper in in the weeds of the data about one a two-parent household one parent going out and working 
in a two-parent household with both parents going out and working? Is there a difference or or, or not? So here's, here's I, I am agnostic about this, but it's not a dodge, okay? It's really not. So here's my, um, the, the short, okay, there's a few different ways I can answer this. The first is, to be clear, in my book, I just basically look at differences in kids' outcomes by whether they have married parents or not, or two parents or one parent, not how the parents have chosen to basically co-parent or co-work or set up things in the household. And I do that very deliberately because if I'm thinking of this from a resource perspective, which I am, that's the perspective I bring as opposed to, again, nuanced relationships, which is, you know, things that non-economists study and is important, but isn't my expertise or particular lens I bring to the data. What two parents have is the luxury of being able to optimize in different ways, right? So you could decide we're both going to work and we're going to outsource childcare. We're both going to work and we're going to arrange our work schedule so someone's always home with the kids. We're both going to work, but one of us is going to work part-time and be sort of the on-call parent. Having two parents means there are a lot more permutations of how you could make things work in the household than if you have one parent who in the household who has to bring, bring in the money who has to take care of the kids, who has to supervise the kids, et cetera. And so I am agnostic, again, in the data deliberately, right? Because I think that's some of the benefit is people can decide different things. And by the way, they can decide different things over years, right? So one year, you might be putting in more hours of work and your spouse stays home. Or when the kids are little, one person stays home. And then when the kids are both in school, one works part-time, one works full-time. There are just a lot more permutations. Um, and in some sense, I let the families optimize, right? But the, but the point is they have more choices than a single parent alone. One way we see this in that this sort of, you know, bears out is again, in general, on average, when we're looking at married parent or two parent households for single or one parent household, we don't just see that married parent households tend to bring in more money, even conditional on like mom's age and mom's education groups. So to be clear, you know, higher resource or higher education, higher income adults are more likely to be married. But even if I just look at, you know, among parents with the same level of education, unsurprisingly, across the board, what you generally find is that like median household income in married parent households is twice as high. Why? Because the majority of Married parent households now have two earners, like the majority, okay? Um, And so that's just not surprising. There's more scope to bring in more money. But we also see when we look at time use data, so we have national and representative data that the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the U.S. government collects, you see in that data, married parents spend more time with their kids. Why? Do I think married parents like spending more time with their kids? No. I think this gets to something you said before. There's two people. Right. If I'm busy doing something, I have, you know, the other parent can spend time with the kids. And so that household with two parents not only brings in more income, but they bring in more time. And again, how different couples allocate their time across the week, across the day, across the year. I'm agnostic about what's better for kids. We just know that households with two parents have more options and more combined time to spend with their kids as well. I I would be interested to see 
what some of those differences are at some point, if there is a difference. I totally agree with you that you have in optimizing and and you have you have more options to play with if you have two people and you know maybe somebody's working part time, somebody's working full time. You know, both are working, you know, full time or whatever. I would, I would be curious to see what the differences are. There's some old, vague data I have about how well, um, what is it? Uh, you know, boys do with working moms. Or yeah, something exactly. Like that. I, there's some old data. No, I can't I, remember yeah, no, no, no. I was going to say that you're right. So there's a, you know, there's a literature about that really focuses more on um like young kids outcomes when mm-hmm, their mom mm-hmm, goes to work yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. and for boys in particular i think if i'm remembering the same study that you're probably trying to recall it's like when there was welfare reform some of that experimentation and moms went to work you know there were different gendered effects because the additional income was mm-hmm. particularly helpful maybe for boys in the household and so there's especially when it's a single mom Mm-hmm. The mom going to work sort of has these offsetting effects, like mm-hmm, depending mm-hmm. on what the arrangement then is for the kid, it could be better or worse for the kid, but the additional income in the household might be particularly beneficial. So it's all very context dependent Yeah, yeah, yeah. and age dependent for the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this this sounds right. I remember there was a, a strange, it was a non-intuitive way of thinking about it, but um, yeah, so it'd be interesting. So I guess the, the question here then about... Uh, I mean, I think it's an easy answer, but maybe I'm just, you know, maybe that's easy for me to say because I'm not a a woman. But I mean, if 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 women have the ability and the capacity and the resources and um, the wherewithal and all of these things in society now to do what they want, shouldn't that matter? So if some women like to to be you know, a stay-at-home mom, and they like to do that whole thing. Great. If some women want to be managing a Fortune 500 company or anywhere in between, great. Is there? Why do you think there's this pushback that of what is it about about you know uh, if 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 women decide to have you know get married and have kids and have a family that that's somewhat going to have a setback on on their career second of that is i feel like there's a kind of dichotomy that's there of like either you do career or you do family but there are plenty of women that do both and that's (laughs) that's all the more impressive i think so why is there maybe in society i mean i i understand in all of my conversations and my reading of feminist literature that there's a lot of pushing to, to, for, for women to to have equality in the workplace in terms of you know status and pay and all these things but that doesn't mean that some women are still going to choose the way it has been there's nothing wrong with that i mean i think you can see this as a type of continuum now so why does it why does it feel sometimes this kind of infighting of sorts of like well if you want to do this you know that's we work so hard to do all these other things why wouldn't you take advantage why do you think there is that pushback or that criticism from some 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 folks? So if I'm putting the lens of, you know, someone who is going to take a feminist objection to what I'm saying, and I've encountered this, right? So uh, I presented my work at a conference um, in, it was actually in Europe. And someone came up to me and she was flabbergasted. She was like, we would 
never say this in Spain. This, you know, I can't even believe you're writing this, that this is bad for kids to have one parent households. This is like, you know, a feminist achievement, basically, that women can now set up households by their own. And it was just interesting to me. And it shows you have the conversations at different, is at different points in different countries. And I said, I was like, have you looked at the data about, you know, household income and kids outcomes in, in the setting and, you know, in, in, in your country, right? Because in the US, this is not a feminist accomplishment. This is happening predominantly for women who are not like killing it career-wise. To your point, right? Like, oh, we think this is great. You know, women women could go be Fortune 500 CEOs if they want. Yes. Now, of course, they're still underrepresented there. So, sure. right. But, um, but again, this is why I think the unequal element to this is so crucial to acknowledge, which is those are the women who are generally still getting married and having their kids inside marriage. And so I, I think it's a, I think it's inaccurate to think of this as really a success story of women's emancipation that large shares of women outside the most economically successful group of women are basically raising kids in a household by themselves. Now, this is what, where I think the caveat is super important, which is to the extent that some of those women would be stuck if they didn't have career opportunities, even if they're not very high paying careers, if they didn't have opportunities that afforded them the opportunity to at least, you know, earn a decent living, an above poverty level wage, they might be stuck relying on, let's say, an abusive partner. Of course, that I think is something to be celebrated. But when you just look at the sheer numbers, we're not we're not talking about small extreme cases anymore, right? We're talking about a small majority of births to mothers without a four-year college degree are now outside of a marital union. Mm. And so I just, I don't think it's accurate to look at that and say, this is a great success story for women to be able to set up an economically precarious household on their own now, right? And 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 also, so here's the other side, because then once I bring, you know, people who are inclined to have that sort of objection on board, they're like, okay, well then let's let's agree that deadbeat dads are terrible. Right. And so here's where, you know, I'm I'm a I could be a really infuriating on the one hand, on the other hand, economist. I'm not really looking to blame the dads either. Some of them are deadbeat dads and, you know, we can denounce them. But I think we need to ask why are so many men struggling or perceived to be struggling to be committed, stable, resident dads and partners? And let's look at the barriers the men are facing too, right? So again, I'm not looking to blame any particular group. Um I, I just think it's not quite accurate to think of this as people have more choices now. They're making choices that, you know, we should be agnostic about. To the extent people are making choices to raise their kids in one-parent households, let's be honest that that's not great for kids. 
to the extent that people are making what look like choices to raise their kid in a one-parent household because a stable two-parent household is something that's out of reach for them, then let's figure out why that is and ways we could improve their situation so they have the benefit and their kids have the benefit of a stable two-parent household. Yeah, a few things on that. So, I mean, do you know Richard Reeves over there at Brookings? He wrote of a course. Boys and Men, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> no, no, he he he. Uh, somehow, and I think he's just could focus on the data and stuff. Dodges a lot of the culture war stuff around this. It, it's sort of taboo to talk about men's issues in some circles, I guess. But yes, there are challenges for men and 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 for for boys and and. When when I had talked with him and we had a conversation, you know, I had brought up this piece of, you know, as I think um, more women are in the workforce and, you know, increasingly so every year. And I think that's a great thing. I do think the inverse of that is we have to also look at in terms of gender roles uh, or uh, kind of the stereotype gender roles. As women's stereotype generals change, I think that also is the inverse too, is men's stereotype generals are going to have to change or should change, right? Um, are you going to have deadbeat dads or, you know, chronic unemployment? And I think that's a really tough thing that, you know, for example, if you have, let's say, you know, it could be the reverse where maybe, uh, you know, a man has a career and if his wife's, you know, kind of on the move and, and is going to really have this trajectory and all these things, that the guy takes a backseat and takes more of care of the family, you know, at home or otherwise. Um, and I think, that, again, that doesn't have to be everybody's experience or that's the new standard, a new model, but that we should make that less, uh, you know, I guess, you know, taboo or less less uncommon. I think that's that's one way. I think, there, again, there's a there's a widening of that continuum as we see there's more changes within things and i think you can do that in a you know you know healthy productive way um and and i and i think that there's the other thing you were saying about <laughs> about you know what is you know what is this one parent uh household look like you know it seems like there's a type of maybe there is or isn't a difference but of um, is somebody volitionally having a one-parent household in the name of whatever, or is this a an involuntary thing where it's like for whatever reason, um, you know, I'm I'm a single parent, um, more often than not a single mom. I, I think that's a a very interesting uh, dynamic. I also wonder, kind of, with the volitional side of that, is is there is it looked a little bit different in Europe where you have better social safety nets right so you're going to get maybe some help with childcare maybe you're going to get some help with education with healthcare um you know etc um that's fundamentally different probably in Norway and Sweden and even Italy and Spain and in France and 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 Germany than it is in the United States for yeah. sure um we don't have those things at the same level Granted, we have, um, you know, we're pretty heterogeneous and we're huge in terms of how many people we have. And those countries are significantly smaller and more homogenous in some ways. All that to say, 
I wonder if there's a little bit more of a, you know, you could do that. Would you do that same thing volitionally if you lived in, you know, the United States and or, you know, other countries? Probably not if you didn't have those social safety nets, but maybe, maybe so. I, that, I could be wrong on that, but. Yeah, no, there's wonder, a lot. Yeah, no, you raise a lot of points. I think I'm going to take them in reverse order. So starting with your point about comparisons to other countries. So the first thing to note is that kids in the U.S. are more likely than anywhere in the world to be living in a one-parent household. So more than one in five kids in the U.S. live with one parent. And the you know it's three times the rate around the world. The U.K. is the nearest to us. Uh, U.K. is like slightly below ours. Even they're higher. The EU, the average in the European Union is 13% of kids. And what's interesting about that is, to your point, the social safety net is much stronger in those countries. So it's easier to support a family on, you know, and one parent's time and money when you live in a country that has a strong safety net where there's publicly provided childcare, where there's stronger welfare benefits. And yet still, the rate is much higher in the U.S. Okay, so there's... There's a lot there. So one thing I think this reveals to us or relates to is the high share of one-parent households in the U.S. is not reflective of an overly generous welfare state. Okay, so yes. our, our share in the U.S. might be even higher if welfare were more generous. Mm-hmm. But in fact, you know, single mom households, if you look at sort of where they're getting their income from, it's like 88% of income on average from a single parent household is from a mother's earnings. Okay. So it's not like, oh, our welfare state is so generous and that's what's driving this. But I grant that if it were more generous, it would probably be even higher in the US. Okay. It raises an interesting question as to whether the disadvantages of kids in single mother households in the US are larger than the relative disadvantages of kids in single parent households in other countries because presumably the stronger social safety net makes up some of that gap. Mm. That was something I wanted to be able to speak to in my book, but I just couldn't find very compelling, you know, comparisons across countries to sort of quantify for me the disadvantage that we see, like kids from one parent households are more likely to live in poverty. They're less likely to graduate high school. They're less likely to finish college. We know all this. They're more likely to be have behavioral um, problems. They're more likely to get suspended in school. This is all very, very clear in U.S. data. What I was looking for was, are those gaps smaller in other countries with stronger safety nets? I couldn't find evidence on that. It's something I'd like to look into in the years ahead. Um, but I think that's an interesting question. But so, so on the sort of the consequences of single parent households across countries, I'm not sure about the international differences in terms of the causes of single parent households, it's not the strong safety net. We see that U.S. rates are much higher. Okay, another important comparison with Europe is people are like, oh, well, in Europe, you know, couples aren't married, but they live together. That is why the rates of one parent households in the U.S. are so much higher cohabitation in the U.S. as sort of an institution is not what it is in Europe. So, you know, in Europe, cohabiting 
it, unmarried parents are much more likely to be in something that looks like a long-term stable cohabiting relationship. That is not the case in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So in the U.S., like I said, you know, 30% of kids in the U.S. live with only their mom. Another 8% of kids live with an, an unmarried parent, one of their parents, either a mom or dad and an unmarried partner. Um, and between like a quarter to a 40% of those situations, the unmarried parent actually isn't the child's other biological parent. So it's we really don't have a lot or a large share of kids in the U.S. living with cohabiting biological parents throughout their childhood. Hmm. Okay. This then, all right. So that, that's the comparison with Europe. Now let's get to Richard Reeves, which is you started your comment with Richard Reeves work. What I love about Richard Reeves book, Boys to Men, is that he's calling attention to the fact that boys are really struggling mm-hmm. and others have done this too. This is really, really important. And this is you know, a key issue that I take up in my book as well. One of my chapters is, you know, called Boys and Dads. Yeah. I mean, over, again, over the past few decades, we've seen that boys are struggling relative to girls. They're more likely to get in trouble in school and with the law in ways that impede their educational and economic trajectories Young men now are substantially less likely to get a bachelor's degree as compared to young women. Mm-hmm. Boys are struggling. Young men are struggling. I think this is related to the rise in single mother households. Why do I say that? Again, both in terms of correlation, we see that in groups that have higher rates of single parent households, boys appear to be struggling you know, relatively more. Over time, as there has been a rise in single-parent households, we've seen that the relative struggles of boys have increased. At a causal level, there are really important studies now that have been done in the past 10 years by economists who have worked really hard to identify causal relationships. And what that research shows is that the gender gap in outcomes, meaning the increased likelihood that a boy gets in trouble compared to a girl, which we know that, you know, this is your psychology background, right? You can back me up here. When boys are struggling, they're more likely to engage in externalizing behavior, to fight, to bully, to do things that are basically going to get them in trouble in school. So I'm not saying that girls aren't suffering inside, but if they are, they're doing so in ways that don't sort of derail their education in the same way as boys, right? Definitely more internalizing behaviors. Yeah. Not, so, so it's, boys it's in are the aggregate. It's not. I mean, I'm not. I'm not an expert in this literature, but what I do know is that this is not in the aggregate. Girls tend to internalize more. Boys tend to, well, really both, but really externalize more in terms of the behaviors of what it looks like. I mean, that's been true for. Decades, I mean. And so what we see, what these researchers have showed, and I'm thinking of work by Marianne Bertrand and others, is that if you even compare, you know, uh, the boys are more likely to do these kinds of things. They're more likely to get in trouble. They're more likely to get suspended from school. That there's sort of, there's an increase in the relative likelihood that boys do that if they come from single parent homes as compared to two parent homes. In other words, The absence of a dad in the house appears to be particularly disadvantageous in ways that we see in kids' outcomes for boys. Mm -hmm. And this is really important for us to grapple with because we see that boys are struggling, we see they're falling behind, and we see that they are more likely now than in the recent past 
to be growing up without a dad in their home. Mm. That's particularly true for Black boys in the U.S. Mm -hmm. There's another really important study that's come out of the Opportunity Insights Lab out of Harvard, the lab you know run by Raj Chetty and colleagues that has access to millions of records on kids' neighborhoods and their earnings as adults. What's really striking about that sort of neighborhood-level study is the single biggest predictor of a smaller gap in earnings between Black and white boys when they grow up, <laughs> meaning what is the most helpful in terms of shrinking Black-white male earnings gaps? The single biggest neighborhood predictor is the share of Black dads in a neighborhood. Okay, so this is beyond just the benefit of having a dad in one's household. They're essentially showing that having, you know, for, for boys who grow up in the same zip code, Black boys do relatively better as compared to the white boys who grow up if there are more Black dads around, not just men, but dads. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is really powerful. And I've never seen that finding before, which it's it's not just the benefit of having a dad in your own household. It's growing up in a neighborhood where there are a bunch of dads like you around. Um, and well, I, then, think the, I think the data on that has been shown kind of now with more community data has shown that the deleterious effects of fatherless uh uh you know black boys is is insane i mean it's 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 insane i mean it's yeah. it's 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 something that is and i don't know all of the sociology components of of that of why it would be more for one particular race over others i mean obviously there are deleterious effects for i think all boys but specifically with with black uh, boys, it's it's particularly you know, demonstrably increased for for other races, which is you know quite sad. And again, this is why I think if we really want to be, you know, the empathetic view here is not to say, "Hey, live and let live." Mm -hmm. It's to say, "Hey, we are just perpetuating disadvantage across generations, and we have got to break this cycle." And I think it's pretty darn clear from the data and evidence that breaking this cycle is going to require addressing the decline in two-parent households for kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I think also in terms of some of those kind of race components, <clears throat> I mean, my understanding is that there are uh, issues within the structures of society and institutions that do have folks that are uh, you know minorities or people of color um you know significantly disadvantaged i mean i think that that's uh, you don't have to you know be a part of the culture war to kind of make that claim i think there are some cases or certain evidence that shows that there are elements of institutions that are going to tip the scale negatively for certain people of different uh, communities. I think that that's, yeah. that's, I don't think that's the whole story, but I think that that's certainly right. a part right. of the story for sure. And and here's where, again, um, once we recognize that a lot of economic, social, and policy challenges have spilled over into this family sphere with what I would say are major consequences for kids and intergenerational mobility, it makes the imperative of addressing them that much stronger. Mm -hmm. So let's take like, one example of prisoner reentry 
you know, um, efforts or criminal justice reform, we know that Black men in America are much more likely to be involved with the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. We know they're much more likely to have, you know, criminal records in their past. We also see from the data and qualitative studies of fatherhood programs that this is a real barrier for a lot of these men being present and engaged in their kids' lives, right? And so if you care about strengthening the family, then you have to care about criminal justice reform and prisoner reentry, right? Because this is a barrier in certain communities. Mm -hmm. And you know, this gets back to your earlier point, like, can we just tell people to get married? Well, no, like, what is it that's keeping some of these men from being engaged co-parents, positive parents, contributing to their kids' lives, either as non-resident dads or, you know, resident dads? And if we see that for some communities, it's previous engagement with the criminal justice system, previous stints in prison, then we need that, that has to be part of our approach to strengthening families. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, I think that that's you people, listeners will probably see how many of these things start to become, you know, interconnected. I guess the the one thing I wanted to ask also was about so we've been talking about about boys, so it sort of segues into the other thing. Was it uh, it was last year? That's right. I can't remember. It was either last year or the year before that. Um, maybe it was two years ago. Uh the Biden administration had, I think Biden himself was very proud of this, of trying to end childhood poverty. We're talking about some of these things about the, um, is it a child tax credit? Is child tax right? credit, yes. Yeah. How, you know, and again, there's, you know, the talking points on, on both sides of this. I, I guess, I don't I don't know if you're, you're close to this or you know anything about it, but in terms of, of children and how mm-hmm. people have children or whatever, and how much... We try to end, you know, childhood poverty is 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 a shame. I mean, it's an absolute shame. So big, a big government measure in that way, and how it's doled out, you know, how again from an economic perspective, you know, how helpful do you, I mean, a does that tax credit really end childhood poverty in the United States? And B, I mean, that's a big claim that they're they're making. And mm-hmm. B. I mean, this is. I think if I remember this right, this is why Biden went to bat over it with with uh, Joe Manchin from Center from West Virginia because that was one of the cuts he wanted to make. And Biden was like, "No, I I, I made a claim that this ends this, and if I cut this, then I'm looking like you know the hypocrite here. Sorry, even if that means you know it's a whole political mess. But so yeah, does it really end childhood poverty? And and economically, does that actually help folks that are um, you know? Uh, you know, impoverished or, or have economic disadvantage. Okay. I'll start with, I think I have three answers. The first, let's start with the child tax credit. So what happened during the pandemic was the child tax credit was expanded from its sort of baseline, which it's returned to of $2,000 per family or per kid to $3,000. And then if your kid was under six to $3,600. So it was a meaningful increase in in income. That's like, right, an additional 1,600 per kid. The other big thing that happened during the pandemic expansion of the child tax credit was that it was made fully refundable, which Mm -hmm. is the tax wonky way of saying even people who didn't owe taxes because they didn't have earnings were able to get the full amount. And so the combination of the increased generosity and the awarding of the benefit to people who didn't have taxable income 
that led to a large reduction in child poverty by some estimates up to 40%, okay? It is true that child poverty in the U.S. fell during the pandemic, which is insane and amazing, right? We had this like terrible shock and child poverty fell. Why? Because the government spent tons of money sending checks to households. You had the expanded child tax credit. You had expanded unemployment insurance benefits. You had stimulus checks. That's amazing. We should, this is separate from my book now, right? But we should 100% take from that, hey, reducing child poverty is well within reach if yeah. we politically decide it's a priority. Did so, you, Did you read the, the book by Scott Fulford, The Pandemic Paradox? Uh, he's no, an but it sounds like the, I should. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's at, uh, he's an economist at the CFPB. Okay. Um, and it was a, we had a, two and a half hour conversation it was quite lovely he, he was he was great he's a, he's, a, he's a great guy and at first when i when i when i read the book and then when i talked to him about it, it's like how do we how did we how did we do how were we better economically during the pandemic and he gives his whole yeah all all of the wonderful data that that he has and he plays on the book and then the crazy thing about that is that you know once people started going back into work and they started going doing things normal then <laughs> Debt started to rise again, which is which is wild. It's a wild yeah. thing uh, of how that kind of uh, paradox works. Okay, so here's the thing. So it was a real shame that we let the expanded child tax credit expire because of ideological digging in on both sides, right? I told you, I have plenty of, I have something for everybody to love and hate. So I hate that the sort of congressional Republicans wouldn't expand this. But I also I, I also lament that the Biden administration and the Dems wouldn't yield on certain sticking points. So there's an obvious, I'm digressing, but you invited the digression. That's so all right. That's there's, all right. An, <laughs> there's an obvious bipartisan path forward here to expand a child tax credit that should sort of satisfy both sides and still lead to a major reduction in child poverty. And I actually put out a proposal with Wendy Edelberg on this through the Hamilton Project. Nice. The two main sticking points of people like Manchin who didn't you know, like this expansion were one, they just didn't want to keep sending checks of $6,000, $9,000 to families with two or three kids if the parents weren't working. And that was just a sticking point, right? And so even if economists say until we're blue in the face, hey, if you look on average, parents spend the money in ways that benefit kids. Everyone knows somebody who is going to use that money to fund their opioid addiction, right? So so there's just a set of people that are not going to be sending unconditional checks to parents out of work. I would give, I would yield on that and don't make that a sticking point. As much as the anti-poverty scholar in me wants to send money to parents with no earnings to help their kids, right? You can still, if you just yield on that full refundability, you can still have this phase in steeply. So it incentivizes work and you could still send expanded amounts to very low income working parents. And then the other thing is we were sending these expanded, you know, expanded amounts to parents at the 80th percentile of the income distribution. Mm -hmm. Like that's just unjustifiable. Mm -hmm. So you could rein in the cost of this by just making it sort of phasing it out at lower levels of income and and still get, you know, the anti-poverty benefits. All right. So anyway, so I definitely think we should revisit ways to expand the child tax credit. 
this relates to the conversation we're having in the way, in, in the sense that the first thing I would say is we can't just wait another 20 years hoping that there's a return to two-parent, more economically secure households without immediately meeting the needs of kids who, through no fault of their own, are disadvantaged in a resource sense by by living in you know under-resourced one-parent households. So I would absolutely, as a policy matter, do things like have a more generous child tax credit or a child allowance, because even if increased transfer payments leads to some small incremental increase in the share of one-parent households, and I will grant that there might be some small increase, right? Because we've made it now more economically viable. That is a trade I would make because it it's just a travesty that we are allowing millions of kids to sort of languish or not reach their human capital potential because they're in, you know, under-resourced homes where their material needs are not being met. Okay. Um, but, right, like, so so I think the worry that, oh, we're going to just increase the share of one-parent households by so much more if we make their lives a little bit less miserable, I think that worry is way overstated. Mm. Okay. Okay. But having said that, it is not really realistic to think that we are ever going to really close the gaps in household resources or kids' childhood environments by having more generous transfer payments to low-income households, including single-parent households. So, you know, you brought up the fight over the child tax credit. That was $3,000. Like, Congress couldn't get behind $3,000 for low-income kids in the country. Mm -hmm. We're talking about an absent parent. What are the chances that the government is ever going to transfer what, $35,000 a year for 18 years to one-parent households to try and close the income gaps between one and two-parent households. So, you know, yes, I think we need to do more to close resource gaps between one and two-parent households. I don't see any politically viable way that we're fully going to, you know, make up for the absence of a full-time, second employed parent in the household. The other thing, the third thing I want to say on that, though, is a second parent in the household does a lot more than bring in income. And this is something, you know, you brought up before. We know that it's it, income is a big part of the difference in, you know, it, differences in income between two-parent and one-parent households can explain as a descriptive level, as a mechanism, that can explain a lot of the gaps in kids' outcomes that we see between one and two-parent homes. And again, we know in the data that kids from two-parent homes, they're more likely to graduate high school, they're more likely to graduate college, they're more likely to have higher earnings as adults. A lot of that is coming from being in higher income households, which means the parents have more money to spend on the kids. They can live in better neighborhoods. They can do all sorts of things that benefit the kids, but it's not just income as we, as we discussed. There's also increased time investment. There's increased emotional bandwidth that, you know, again, leaning into research that's been produced by development psychologists means that parents are better able to parent in ways that are developmentally appropriate and nurturing for kids. So it's not just income. 
Well, I, I, I fully agree. I think maybe we can, one of the, the latter points here that I wanted to, to ask about was about the number of children that were seen or, or not seen, I should say, in the United States. So it's very rare for me, at least nowadays, that I, <laughs> I see someone that's like, yeah, I got four kids. Yeah. <laughs> People just don't, just seemingly doesn't seem like there's more kids. And I, I mean, I would have to assume, look, if you're a one uh, parent household, you know, you're not going to be having a bunch of different you know, kids typically, or if you're a one parent household that you have, you know, there has to be some difference between one child and three or four children. If you're a one parent, I mean, just in general, but especially if you're a one parent household. Is there is part of the reason why we see a decrease in how many kids people are, many people are having just one uh, child, um, maybe two? Um, is there is there is this predominantly because of the the economic situation in in at least in the United States of it's just kids are really damn expensive and it's really expensive. I mean, they're always expensive, but it's really expensive in in our um, you know economy now. And people are just like, yeah, no, I mean, I'm waiting until I'm a little bit older to have kids anyways. And then I don't want to have three or four of them. I mean, I'm going to be broke. I mean, I mean, some people do, obviously, but yeah. is there an economic correlation here or not entirely? Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad you brought up birth rates. So I'm going to answer your question. But first, let me just emphasize the the sort of descriptive point you're you're making, which is births are down in the US. So people are having fewer kids than they used to. Mm-hmm. Births are are way down. Teen births are down over 70% from the mid-90s. The reason that's really important to recognize alongside of the conversation we're having about the rise in one-parent households is because the rise in one-parent households, single-mother households, has happened despite the fact that births are way down and teen births in particular are way down. So again, if we did this exercise where we uh, sort of kept everything as it was in the early 80s and had, you know, mom's education level increasing, the fact that teen births have plummeted, what would we have predicted for the share of kids growing up in single parent homes? We would have predicted that would be way down because teen births are down, births to younger women are down. The only group of women who are having more births than they used to are women over age 30 which historically and still now they're more likely to be married, right? So the interesting thing here is that even though births are down, the share of births that are outside marriage is way up for every group. Every group is more likely to have births outside marriage than 20, 40 years ago, especially high school educated um, moms. But anyway, so births are down, teen births are down, and yet single mother households are way up. All right. So that's an important fact to be clear about. Now your question of why are births down? Um, This is something I've actually, you know, written about a lot, uh, mostly with my co-author, Phil Levine and and co-author Luke Pardue. We've looked at a lot of explanations for this, sort of simple explanations like in the U.S., childcare has become more expensive. Rent has become more expensive. Student loan has become more crippling. Those kinds of simple explanations really don't 
have any statistical power in the data. And and I think there's, you know, two ways to make sense of that because kids are really expensive, as you said. Kids have always been expensive and they've always taken a lot of time. Um, did they all of a sudden become much more expensive in the past 15 years? It doesn't look like in places where childcare or rent has gone up or student debt is higher. We don't see that in those places, birth rates have fallen by more. So it's just, I just can't find evidence in the data for any of these sort of simple explanations. What it, our read of the data and evidence on this leads us to more of a cohort-based explanation, Hmm. meaning... Is this where you're going to pick on millennials or Gen Zs? I'm not going to pick on them. (laughs) I'm I'm going to say, (laughs) but, okay, but it, but like, what am I? I'm Gen X, right? I was born in the 70s, raised in the 70s and 80s. Women of my cohort basically had about, you know, 2.1 kids on average, which, um, by the way, is what you need to replace the population, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, women who entered their childbearing years subsequent to that generation, so these were kids in the 90s and early 2000s, they're not done with their childbearing years yet, but essentially there's no way they're going to catch up. They've had, like, they're less likely to have kids at every age. Their sort of life cycle childbearing profile is just below mm-hmm. women of my generation and older. Mm-hmm. And I don't think what happened was like all of a sudden having kids became particularly more costly in 2007. But this is speculative because it's hard to explain, you know, in the data, things that are sort of universal. But if you look across women, kids who grew up in the 90s and 2000s, they experienced really intensive parenting, right? So what it means to be a parent, that's different now than it was in the 70s and 60s. They also grew up seeing their moms work. So their own career aspirations would be different, right? So I think more likely what's happened is, you know, what we refer to as shifting priorities, that people are choosing to spend their adult time and money in different ways and sort of having a kid and, and frankly, being married is less critical to what it means to being an adult today than it did for earlier generations. And by the way, we see the same thing happening or actually it happened a decade before, in other high-income countries, right? Mm -hmm. So even in Scandinavia, with all of their generous welfare state, like we talked about before, it's not as hard to have a kid there as here. Mm -hmm. Still, fertility rates are way down and they're below replacement level. So I think to explain why births are down, you really need something that's sort of universal across high-income countries. I wonder, and and this was something, again, I looked into trying to say something about in my book, but I couldn't find compelling evidence. So it's not in the book, but you know, we could speculate or raise the question for others to look into. I wonder how much all of these demographic changes are related. The idea that it's less crucial to have kids now than it used to from like a viewpoint of how I want to live my adult life. It's less crucial to be married. It's less crucial to do both of those things together. There are clearly different social norms now than in the past. And how related they are to one another is something I wonder about, but don't know. Yeah. Millennials are an interesting bunch. So they're they're very interesting. And 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 even more fascinating. Uh so I'm I'm an old millennial. So 
but uh, I think Gen Zs are, are are super fascinating, very, very, very fascinating. So that the you know I guess the jury's out on on that. But it is I, I agree with your your you know kind of you know initial hypothesis there. We do we would have to find something across high income country. I mean it'd have to be something that can't just be uh, you know safety nets or whatever. Yeah. So the last question I have for you, uh, you in the in the last chapter of the book, you talk about things we should and we shouldn't do. Uh, so how do we, you know, restore the norm for two parent households? Uh, how do we improve economic, you know, positions and have stronger safety nets through, you know, government and or community programs? Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I like I've sort of suggested throughout a lot of the answers I've given you. I think what's happened is both. Uh, reflection of economic and social changes and the way they've interacted in particular outside the college educated class. And so I think, you know, what I think we need to do is first be upfront about the fact that two parent households are beneficial for kids. And we can acknowledge that. And then once we acknowledge that, that sort of shapes the way we approach social policies and programming. Right. But I think a reluctance to acknowledge that has been very costly in the sense that it's contributed to a to a normalization of one parent households in a way that's probably been suboptimal. Right. That's sort of made this too widespread um, from the perspective of, you know, child well-being, I would say mother well-being, some might say father well-being. Um you know, maybe we need to to figure out how to acknowledge. No, I think we do need to figure out how to acknowledge the benefits of this family structure without retreating to a very counterproductive and unhelpful and unfair stigmatization of single moms. So here's where again, I think we can both acknowledge the benefits of a two parent household and still effectively and with empathy meet families where they are. Right, so. That helps us design programs, and that should lead us to be more willing to publicly fund programs that are focused on strengthening families. So even like just a sort of policy wonky point on this, if you look at the Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families, only 1% of the budget is spent on programs that are classified as uh, strengthening um, stable and safe families as compared to, you know, 15% on foster care. So like we spend a lot more money trying to get kids out of families and then we don't do enough to try and strengthen families. So I think acknowledging strong families as a social norm then should trickle into how we fund and research programs aimed at strengthening families. But that needs to go hand in hand with an acknowledgement of the various economic and social challenges that has eroded the value or the perceived value of marriage or two-parent families in some segments of the population that has made it harder for uh, unmarried couples to feel like they can achieve um, stable marriages or two-parent households. And so again, like once we recognize the spillover that all of these economic shocks and erosion of economic security has had to family life and and society more broadly, we really need to double down on the urgency of 
increasing opportunities for family supporting wages and earnings among people outside the college educated segment of society. Um, We need to focus on things like criminal justice reform, anything that sort of helps remove those barriers, making it you know, increasing opportunities for people to achieve a family supporting living wage, that has to go hand in hand with our commitment to a restoring a norm of two-parent households for kids. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's nicely said. I, I, I firmly agree with, with all of that. Um, well, the book is called The Two-Parent Privilege, How the Decline in Marriage Has Increased Inequality and Lowered Social Mobility and What We Can Do About It. Uh, Melissa, this was such a wonderful wonderful uh conversation uh i'm very 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 happy that we had it uh any any place in particular that you want to uh direct people whether it's for you personally or your your professional work or for the book anything in particular oh i appreciate that so i you know i'd love for people to read the book they can buy it at their local bookstores at amazon um any place where they get their books and i you know my my real goal here is to spur conversation so we could collectively come together and and work towards stronger families um, for you know for kids in particular in this country so thank you so much for having me on and for all of your great questions absolutely absolutely thank you so much